Kids and you. 90s Stony Island. Stony Island Yo, this is Open Mike Eagle. This is your captain speaking. This is what it happened was. This is season three, episode four with our guest, with our special guest, Mr. Dante Ross. Thanks for all the love so far, y'all. Great response last week to the Queen Latifah episode. And also through that, a bunch of people seem to get hip to the genius. DJ Mark 45 King. If you're messing with us, like us, rate us, review us. It helps the robots love us. Holding the great Sage Drake. The robots never loved us. I like saying that. It's fun. Quick question that I get about these episodes. And I always seem to get this question a few weeks in to every season. Um, Dante Ross made the beat that I rap over when I intro him going into our conversation Uh, Dante made the beat this season like LP made the beat last season like Prince Paul made the beat in season one it will always always be that way that's one of the uh, that's one of the the small print uh, clauses in the contract when you sign to be an eternal trapped in a jail chair guest for a, a catalog saga legacy unpacked interview here at what it happened was you gotta um you gotta make a beat for our intro and I get to rap over it while I say nice things about you and throw to an interview about you and your life sounds like a win 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 all around to me and you people you guys you folks you persons seem to be enjoying it so that's great for us this is what it happened was as part of the Stony Island Audio Network peep out the rest of the content on our network the fatherhoods podcast dad by rap pod the raw report with dice raw super duty tough work creativity and captivity the questions hip-hop trivia can't knock the shuffle self-quar i'm sure there's something i'm forgetting and i apologize i'm doing all of this off the top of the dizzy <laughs> in this episode we pick up with dante having just left Tommy Boy Records after classic releases by De La Soul and Queen Latifah. He moves on to Elektra Records to start his epic run. He starts off with one of the most impactful groups in hip-hop history, y'all. Sadat X, Grand Poobah, Lord Jamar, together known as Brand Nubian. This is what it happened was. Welcome, man. This is Open Mike Eagle. This is season three of what it happened was, y'all. We got another very special guest with us. He needs no introduction, but... If you ever read the line of notes on classics from all kind of folks, you know who knew where to find the dope. It's Dante serving stories like entrees. I guess for season three, it's a giant like Andre. Mr. No Shit Taker, the third base hit maker. Aganar Innovator, the ODB motivator. He signed a roster full of heavy hitters. Office Messenger, the Grammy winner. Motherfucker Dante Ross. In the 90s, you would call him the plug. Signing act after dope act. He saw in the clubs as Pete Seagull leaders dealing all the above. If you don't know him, don't call him a scrub. It's what it happened was.
What up? What up? What up? What's Mr. Dante. Man, I'm chilling, man. I am chilling. How are you doing today? Good, man. Weather's nice. A little it hot. It is. It's a little too hot. It's a, a little, little hot. too hot. Yeah. You know, I got a, I got like a, a window unit air conditioner situation, man. And I'll be stressing that thing out when it get like this, you know? I have and a... Man, I have central air, but we've been do, we've been remodeling one of the bedrooms, and that shit got hot in there yesterday working in there. Yeah, man. Uh, today we're gonna jump back in. I think last we left off, you were basically just leaving Tommy Boy. Yeah. And we should revisit that a little bit. Okay. So how how long were you at Tommy Boy before you left? A year and change. It was less than two years. Um, and I left due to a series of events. I um, I had been offered a job by a guy named Tim Carr, who who's the guy who signed the Beasties to Capitol. And hmm. Tim was, um, I met Tim in a roundabout way. I met him in a crazy way. But me and Tim ended up becoming friends. And I think Tim kind of felt like, oh, I have the Beasties. Let me get one of their friends over here. And I'll like have all the cool kids like under my umbrella. <laughs> so, so. Tim offered me a job, and it was for twice the money Tommy Boy offered was paying me. It was it was it was a pretty good job. It's, which which um, I, I remember he took me to lunch. Well, I went to his office and he played me a Mantronics record, and mm-hmm. he had signed Mantronics and he asked me what I thought, and I said, I think Mantronics seen better days. But right, because they were they had they've been out a while. Right. By and time. I was like, but you know, there's a you know there's a lot of opportunities out here. He said, well, let's go eat. And he, he was like, would you want to come work for me? And I said, maybe. How much money you got for me? He said, $60,000. And I was surprised. So I was making like twenty eight. I said, $60,000. He goes, <laughs> I could probably do seventy. He thought I was shit. Wow. He thought I was beeping. And he went up right away. So I said, oh, shit. I said, yo, Tim, I'm very interested. My lawyer's Andy Tavel. Let me, let me talk to him. It would have been the same job, basically, A&R? It would, I think I was going to be an A&R rep. But it was like the same okay. job, yeah. I mean, there was, you know, and and I probably would have had more free reign than a real expense account. Mm-hmm. So I um, I went over to uh, talk to Andy Tavel, and we talked about capital, and he he told me straight up that capital was probably not the best place for me to work. And I knew this; they, you know, had very little urban music and and very little urban music support. I um, see. So, but he was like, "Look, but it's a good bargaining." tool for you so let's see where we can get with this and we we went to tommy boy and we had a meeting and and tom silverman offered me i think maybe thirty five thousand dollars a year Um, so you walk in there with like say hey i have a deal i have an offer from this you're a competitor of yours for 70 yeah and his answer was 35 he said well no he goes i remember this is so monaco's there too and well you'll never be able to work at a major label and I didn't go in there going like, hey, I have a $70,000 job on the table. I was like, hey, we should talk about this because people are hollering at me, right? Like people want to mm-hmm. give me a job for more money. And, and I, I don't think I gave him the facts, like where it was and what it was. He, uh, he said, well, you can never work at a major label anyway. White guys can't do urban A&R at major labels. And you'll never be able to survive. Um, but here's what wow. I can do for you. And I, I got kind of, an, I was pissed off. I remember going back to my office and my lawyer told me to um, take it in stride. And he was going to see what else there was out there for me. If capital is offering me X amount of money, someone else going to offer me money too. Um, and Russell had already been in my ear to maybe go back to working at Def Jam, to go into work at Def Jam. They, are, they, are they scoping? Are Russell and Leor scoping what you're doing yeah, and Tommy yeah, Boy, what yeah. you're bringing in? Lior, was, uh, Lior and me kind of had a, 
uh, awkward relationship at that point. We're kind of like st- strained relationship because because I remember he was he started managing Dela and that kind of like was that ruffled everyone's right. feathers a little and he kind of started like I remember him talking to me about Dela and like talking down to me kind of I was like yo Lior like I was there before you were like relax and we we had had a tense relationship at that point but me and Russell were cool and Russell started hollering at me about maybe going to work there Tommy boy wasn't going to pay me the money that I, I should have been paid so my lawyer rang a couple of bells I knew this guy named Raul Roach at this I guess he heard that I was looking for something he worked at Electra he was a really nice guy he's the son of Max Roach which which I mm-hmm. thought was cool and uh, I met a couple of like label heads I remember I met with Barry Weiss at Jive but that was like kind of like a parallel move I talked to a couple other people and I met with Bob Krasnow and and Raul Roach I I liked Raul he was a good dude really nice person I like Bob Krasnow the president of Electra Records I thought he was an interesting guy and he's pretty legendary he was kind of a kind of reminded me of myself he was kind of a maverick he didn't really give a fuck um mm. and somehow he made it work for him and I I remember when I met with him he um asked me like so so like he he basically said like I don't really know a lot about hip hop but I know it's important and mm. everyone seems to say that you know what you're doing do you, what other kinds of music are you into and I started talking to him about music and he told me he had signed Parliament Funkadelic which I thought was okay. really cool and and they had Anita Baker and Keith Sweat on the label but he was and Metallica which I thought was cool Cause I thought I told him I said I think it's really cool you have Nita Baker Metallica on the same label. He said I'm glad you see that. He said I just signed this a couple of new things. I signed this this band the Pixies. You might have heard of them. I was like, "Oh yeah." They're really good cuz they had put out a couple of records before they signed Electra. And I was like, "Yeah, I really like them. They were like one and they were one of my favorite alternative bands." And I was like, "Oh, that's really cool. They they're a great band." And he was like, "Yeah, we have big hopes for them." And and he said I signed this girl named Tracy Chapman. I was like, who's that? He's like, she's not out yet, but let me play you something. He played me Fast Cars and Test Pressing. And I thought yeah. it was amazing. Um, when I walked out of that meeting, I wanted to work for him. I thought his understanding of music and and more than that, to say to me, I don't really know about hip hop, but I know it's important. Um, was cool because he wasn't trying to front, um, and I thought that was that was right. cool. And so they offered me a job, and it was it was a little bit more money than capital, and it felt like a better place to work. I liked Raúl, and I went to work there. Funny, third base comes up again. Raúl was maybe <laughs> going to sign third base, but he didn't. We didn't sign third base. They were going to maybe be my first act, and he didn't think it was a great idea. And I, I get it. It was kind of weird, like a white guy gets signed, gets a job to sign A and R, you know, an A and R job to sign rap groups, and the first group he signs is a white group. So, so I didn't mm-hmm. sign third base. They, they didn't think we should do it. And I signed a girl named Shazzy who flopped. That was my okay. first record, and I produced a lot of the record with my partners. It was kind of awkward, man. I like my first year was a struggle. I had a a, a boss, a guy named Howard Thompson. He ran the A and R department. He didn't care for me much. He uh, his mm-hmm. girlfriend managed my friend's band called Urban Blight, and he didn't like that band very much. And he wasn't very nice to me. He was English, and I, I want to say he he had some issues with race and color and the genre of hip hop. He was pretty condescending. Mm-hmm. We didn't really see eye to eye, and and I struggled a bit. And my first brand newbie and single flop kind of feels so good. It got a little play in New York, 
Um, I don't know if you've ever seen the video, but it's pretty ridiculous. It didn't really do what I thought it would do because I thought I had like the next De La Soul. Like I thought I had the next right. thing and apparently I, I didn't <laughs> uh, right away. And though we, we persevered on, you know, we made the record for maybe $60,000. We went over budget. They had some problems with the label. They were, you know, they were like combative. You know, they were like you, 5%. You mean brand, okay, Brand Nubian had problems with people at Electra. Brand Nubians, yeah. They, they were really, they were really difficult. Um, and there was an incident where they had swipe car vouchers. They rang, rang up like over $10,000 in car vouchers. Wow. I remember $16,000. And my boss, Howard Thompson, you know, he, he tore me a new one over it. That said, we, we finished the record and we put out the single and it goes from bad to worse. We put out Wake Up. So it starts getting played on the radio, but the video gets banned, not banned, it gets rejected by MTV. Which was ironic because Fat Five Freddy directs it. Wow! But they took it. They took offense to the black eye and white white face, which I thought was actually kind of cool. Um, with the devil horns, who tries to sell technology, and we had to re-edit the video. I knew had a promotion, Ruben Rodriguez at that point, and, and he did not care for the band. He didn't care for their messaging. He didn't mm. like the fact that Chris Lighty and Leor managed them, and it was an uphill struggle. They put the record out in the fourth quarter of the year, which is where they put records out to die. Our record didn't die. It was a sleeper hit. It kept going and going and going and, and selling. And by the time we hit the next year, the record was having its biggest sales weeks. And this was organic. It wasn't due to any wonderful promotion program or plan initiated by my urban staff at Electric Records. They mm. were relatively negligent. And that caused more bad feelings between the band and and the promo staff and um, and myself. And I always kind of sided with the band. And after making that record, The Brand Nubians, which was a hard record to make um, because Puba, you know, kind of like decided he was going solo in the midst of the record. Huh. That's why there's solo records on it. Though he never like said it, but you could see it coming. And there was tension within the group, but there's also tension with the group and the label and with me at times. And I had to earn their trust um, Jamar and Alamo in particular were, were skeptical. These guys were new to the, to the, you know, the 5% nation. And, and, um, you know, you got a white Jewish kid who's your A&R guy and right. you're, you're a new convert to a very militant form of Islam. And, you know, it makes for some confrontation. So it wasn't easy, but I will say this, that I really worked hard for the band. And at some point in time, those guys saw how much I believed in them and how, how much I put myself on the line. And, and it was never a problem with Pooh X. It was, it was Jay and, and Alamo, but you know, mm -hmm. I won those guys over by, by just my dedication to the band. And, and I really felt while we were making the record that it was great. I, I knew we had a great record. There were, every time I'd play a song for anyone, they would all tell me how good it was. Um, whoever I played it for, um, the De La guys in Tribe were both fans. I played it for the guys at the Source. They loved it. And, and I knew I had a great record. I just had to get over the hurdle of, you know, my urban staff. And, and at that time, you know, it's like early in, in, in major labels, 
trying to wrap their heads around rap music, and there was a real divide. Right. There's a real culture clash between like what the kids liked, which was rap music, and what the the urban promo staffs liked, which was Anita Baker. Right. And you know, Chuck mm-hmm. D always talked about it, like you know, we called them honey drippers, right? So those guys wanted love songs, and and they wanted to work like right. Levert or whatever. You know, <laughs> they didn't want to know about about um, Brand Nubian or whatever it was, right? So right. it was it was definitely tough. You know, they much rather work a Keith Sweat record or or a Nita Baker record or Howard Hewitt record. Those were guys all on Electra than a Brand Nubian record. And and I had right. a revolving door of urban promo guys, and it was always it was always strained. I never you know I never necessarily saw eye to eye with with any of those guys and, you know, label politics, the, the white kid with baggy jeans and a skateboard, you know, telling them about what's, what's popping in the streets in, 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 you know, New York city. They didn't want to hear it. They didn't want to hear about rap music from me. And there was a couple of times when the guys literally went after my head, but my boss, Bob Krasnow protected me. He, he liked me a lot. Hmm. Um, he made me a vice president and he made me a senior vice president. So he was a great dude. And I, I greatly, uh, I really enjoyed working for him. He was, probably my favorite boss of all time. But the Brand Nubian record for me was a real learning experience. Poobah was, you know, incredibly irresponsible. <laughs> he, he did the no-show a lot. Really? Uh, we worked at the studio called Calliope, and they would have petty cash. And him and the other Brand Nubians would get the petty cash advanced to them on the studio bill. So those guys would often race to get there first to see who could get the $50 petty cash to put money in their pocket. Wow. It was like a complete scam. There was there was all that going on. And the other thing was uh, Grand Poobah was, he was, he, he was very self-absorbed, meaning he really, he did the, the other guys in the band dirty a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. Um, when I say dirty, like it, it wasn't like unforgivable shit, but petty little things and he definitely valued himself at times as more important than the band. And I guess in a sense he was. He was the centerpiece of it. He was the guy with credibility. And he was a very good producer, which people don't necessarily ever give him credit for. Besides being like the top of the food chain rap-wise at that point, like he was like one of the best rappers alive. He he was um, a great producer. He produced all, all for one. I remember how he made it. He took the loop from the middle of the record, and he. he I mean, that mono. song. That song I mean, sounds like nothing ever. Nah, like that it's beat, such a that crazy beat is song. such a standout track. And and I don't know if you peep it, there's really no drums in it. There's just right. an 808 and a drum fill. So it's also like the precursor to like what Alchemist does now. Right. Um, and, and he was the first guy who ever showed me more is less. Because I, I made this record before that, the Shazzy record I produced it. And I made it, it was like Bomb Squad style. There's Layers a million of samples and all kinds of shit going on and change-ups. And Poobah was the guy like, you know, all you need is one loop and a kick and a snare. And if the MC is killing it, you're good. Like, And I was mm. like, oh, I didn't really understand that about music in a hands-on way before I worked with them. Though, you know, look, I listen to Tribe and that's kind of what Tribe did and I get it. But I didn't know how to do things like that. I always, you know, I kind of have ADD anyway. So I always want to do everything I can at once. And he kind of showed me 
uh, more is less, the minimal approach to making music and even rapping, right? So you have people rapping like Tretch who were very rapid fire. Yeah. And he's a great MC, but then you had Pooba who's real playful and I don't say simple, but it's not overly complex, but it's just so soulful and funky, right? And he's like, his his bounce and, and the way he kicks shit is just so, it had so much like, it's oozing with soul, it's just drenched in, in funk. And, you know, the way he did that was a huge, huge influence on music at that time and all the stacks, loops he used and I used and, and the way it came together was a big influence on everyone. I, I mean, Cypress Hill studied that record. They had the early demos and B-Real would always tell me I should study Step to the Rear just because it was so dope. And I was like, he's so good. And, and people like, you know, all their peers embraced them. And it was celebrated more so by the people who really knew what was up, their peers and producers and, and you know, like-minded heads all got it where hmm. my own company ne- didn't necessarily get it. And, and it didn't make it easy for the band or for me. But, but that said, I held it as I held it and held it as a big success. It, it changed. Um, it changed my career. And I think it changed the landscape of rap music for a minute. And it was it's a New York classic. It's like it's one of those records. And it also was kind of one of those records that like it's a New York classic, meaning it didn't travel the way I hoped it had. Mm. Just to step back for a second, how was it that you came across Brand Nubian in the first place? So I knew Grand Poobah from Masters of Ceremony. He was um, one of my favorite MCs. And while we were making even the De La record, we were very cognizant of how dope he was. He was, you know, if you knew about rap music, you knew how dope he was. And I would say that Masters of Ceremony are one of those groups that kind of walked the line from the old school to the new school. Mm-hmm. They weren't as new and inventive as Native Tongues, but they weren't as dated as Run DMC. Gotcha. So they're kind of in the middle. And they were like a Latin Quarter group. They had a couple of New York hits, Sexy and Cracked Out. Those were like big records in New York. <laughs> And I like their album, and he was the standout on their album. I got to meet him. I want to say I met him at the Latin Quarters with um, Positive K. This is while you're still a Tommy boy? Yeah. I wanted him to produce Latifah. I wanted him mm. to do a dancehall record with her because I really liked Redder Posse on Masters of Ceremony. And they always, because they had Don Barron, they did a lot of stuff that had a kind of a dancehall vibe to it, like a tinge to it. And he was a good producer. I knew he produced the record. So I was like, Poobah and Latifah, and she was with it. But we never made it happen. But in the process of trying to get that to happen, he brought me a brand Nubian demo at Tommy Boy. And it was a song called Not Going Out Like That. It was off a James Brown sample. And it was dope, man. It was super dope. I had done that at Jazzy J's studio. I think it was the only song they had on there. And I wanted to sign him. You wanted to sign him to Tommy Boy at the time? I, I thought about signing him to Tommy Boy, but I knew I was leaving. Mm. And, and I didn't know where I was going, though, that, which is funny. And I told Max, just bear with me for a minute. I'm going to take you where I'm going to go. And I'll, I promise you, you'll get a better deal than if you signed the Tommy Boy. And I remember Monica Lynch wanted to sign, sign them. And she said, she told me, I know, you know, she knew I was leaving. She said, I know you're going to leave, but I think it's, it would be wrong for you to sign Grand Poobah because you're meeting with him here. Mm. And I said, oh, I'm not going to sign Grand Poobah. I don't worry about it. And I signed Brand Nubians. I didn't sign Grand Pooba. <laughs> okay. I guess that worked out then. When you get to Electra, 
and you're starting to work with groups in the studio, or even more basic than that, did you have the exact same duties as when you worked at Tommy Boy, or, or did it did the relationship to you and the artist change in any way? It only changed because I knew what I was doing more. Mm-hmm. You know, I had I had more experience, so I knew how to how to you know make beats kind of, and I knew the science of making records more, and and I was deeper entrenched in the art of making music. So you know. I, I just had more experience, so so, and, and I had a little bit of, I had more credibility. I'd made a couple of hits, so so that was really just it. But but I will say that once again, like I learned a ton of shit from Max. Like Puba was like in the studio and just understanding um, how relevant the same pop culture I grew up on was to someone like Max was refreshing. We had very similar common ground in what we liked, whether it was music or TV shows from the 70s or 60s mm-hmm. or all black exploitation flicks. We, we shared a similar sense of humor and, and had a lot of the same likes, whether it was old basketball shit or dressing a certain way, like wearing polo or all that. We had a lot of common sensibilities, which was, which was interesting because we come from very different worlds. So that common ground was cool to, to discover. X was so young, he was, he was pretty quiet, to be honest. But I also... Also thought that he was kind of um, reminded me of like Pooba 2.0. He was like the futuristic mm-hmm. Pooba, the way he rapped. On file is a style, that's why you caught a clip. My suitcase is packed and I'm going on a trip to Micadelphia. I go for self and still be slamming. The school bell is ringing and I call somebody cramming over test. Like, cause he obviously had a lot of Pooba influence, but he was like beyond Pooba. He was more out there. He was like Pooba plus like Cool Keith or something. He was like over <laughs> here more. And Jamar was, um, I gotta give Jamar a lot of credit because Jamar was very about his business, if that makes sense. He was like the most responsible, the most, I wanna say the most militant, the way he lived his life. Maybe the most difficult initially, but also maybe the hardest worker of all of them. I ended up having um, a lot of respect and, and, and I like him a lot as a person. And, and we became you know, good, pretty good friends after we had a confrontation or two during the making of the album. And he actually, well, I, I want to say he did the Wake Up beat, but I think actually Poobah did um, the, the Ray Gubin and Brown version, the, the one that became kind of the single. And it was, it was a, an odd dynamic, but it was fun. I had a lot of fun making that record. We'll get back into it in one second, but I need to take a quick moment and shout out our sponsor, DistroKid. Man, so many of my homies use DistroKid. It's a music distribution service that makes distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keeping 100% of their royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to put their music on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. A million plus artists, and I swear I know at least 100 of them. And now DistroKid has an app. You can use the app to upload new releases, see your DistroKid bank, and get notified when you've earned royalties. You can even check your streaming stats live. The DistroKid app is now available on iOS. Go to the App Store and download it. DistroKid also has a new feature called Instant Share that allows you to easily share large files securely with collaborators, producers, booking agents, managers, playlist curators, and more. Basically, anybody that needs access to your music, there's an easy way to upload it and send them a link. Go to distrokid.com slash instant share, drag and drop your files to upload, and then you can copy and send your link right there. 
is free to send one gigabyte of files. That's like 100 MP3s. Don't quote me on that. Go to distrokid.com slash open mic. That's distrokid.com slash open mic. O-P-E-N-M-I-K-E for 30% off your membership. You're credited between, you know, you and Stimulated Dummies. You're credited as a producer, I think, on like five of these songs. Nah, I think there's two. I think I Just did. Just two? I did, um, I'm Poobah later, but I did, I did Wake Up, like one version of it, which was, which is funny because it was the original version was Wake Up. And then mm-hmm. I walked in the studio and they were redoing Wake Up over the Ray Goodman and Brown shit with the Roy Ayers sample. Right, and I remember being offended. I I was like, "Fuck all that! Mm. You can't just go change my record." And me and Jamar had an argument about it that got pretty pretty heated. People had to get between us, and and he, he probably would kick my ass. <laughs> Going back to my theory of all good rappers can beat up the A and R guy. Um, <laughs> and and um, I was I was annoyed, but you know what? Like I guess you know not to pat myself on the back when I heard it after I got over my initial offense, I, I had to say it was better. It, it fit the mm. band more. It was more unique and ethereal. It had a more unique feeling to it. Um, and I had to support it. So, But I think I only did, if I'm not mistaken, I only did that and Step to the Rear on that album. And when I say I, I didn't really do Step to the Rear. My partner did it. And the Gibi Dijani, rest in peace, did it. He did it out of... Um, <laughs> necessity we were we were in the studio so i don't know how familiar you are with the way people used to record like back in the day but you know it was a hassle to lock up your drum machine to to tape and the shit took a couple hours man it was never right. a fluid simple process so we had tracked out a song that i give poobah beat tape and he had picked it and it was um i want to say it was meet me on the battlefield a sample of the wild magnolias chopped up and it was it was funky but Poobah came to the studio and he was like, yo, D, he listened for like a half hour. He was like, yo, I can't write to this. And I was like, mm. what? He was like, yeah, I, I ain't got it. To say, I can't fuck with this. And I was like, but you picked it. And he was like, yeah. And I was like, damn it. So. Right, because you're in the middle of tracking out a beat I tracked that takes it. Hours. Yeah, I already tracked it. And, yeah. I, and I wanted to do a song on the album. Gibi, to his credit, was like, yo, I, let me play some shit. And he went right into the bag of discs. And he, he had the... I don't want to show a record it is, but he had the disc and he popped it in and he, he was the loop for a step to, step to the rear. And he was like, oh, I'm fucking with that. There and it is. and um, we put a kick and snare in it. And I found a little piano change up from another record. Dun, 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 and we put that in there. And that was it, man. And Poobah and, and Gibi found the, the vocal scratches and all that. Poobah did the scratches. Poobah did the scratches too. Yeah, oh yeah, he could, He was a good DJ. He could cut. He could play wow. piano too, which is wild. He he knocked it out. He knocked it out the park. That was it. And, and we went and we did the vocals. And for some reason, everyone had to leave. I think they had to leave because they had day jobs. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I stood there and Max did the vocals. And I want to say when we were doing the vocals, Melly Mel came in and and he was like, what up, Max? And Max was like, yo, what up? He was like in the same studio. And when he left, Poobah kept doing Melly Mel impersonations. <laughs> kept going, rah, rah, rah. Step to the rear, rah. And, and I, he kept, I kept crying, yo. He had me dying. 
And uh, we did the vocals and the mix that night. We mixed it again later on. Poobah did the mix. Actually, Gibi was pissed that he didn't get to mix it. And and it's one thing my partners would never understand when working with artists, like especially a guy like Max, you really have no control over how they're going to behave or act or do what they're going to do. And like they're just going to work on your shit without you if they want to work on your shit without you. And that's how it is. You got to just try and catch the lightning in a bottle. And it was it was off, often a point of contention between me and my, my partners because they were like my production partners, but they weren't partners in my A&R gig. And, and um, I had to wear both hats. And sometimes they didn't understand uh, right. the compromises that both hats make you wear. See, this is no illusion. The style is too confusing. If you try to bite, then you're cruising for a bruising. So, okay, yes. Yeah, as Stimulated Dummies, you credit it for Wake Up and Step to the Rear. Mm-hmm. And so for take feels so good, for instance. So I got credit, credit on it, but, but I shouldn't Ross. be credited yeah. on that. I didn't do shit. Okay. I just I didn't do nothing. I I think I um I, I I don't know. I think I put my name on the record and I shouldn't have. It never was really a point of contention, but but my name didn't deserve to be on that record. I, I think I was I, honestly, in retrospect, I feel like I did a puffy on that shit. That's not cool. Mm. And I, I don't I don't really I'm, I probably owe those guys an apology though. It's never become an issue, so so I'll apologize here and now. I don't think it's ever been I don't think it's ever been mentioned. I can't recall it, but maybe it was, but I didn't really produce that record. Poobah did that record. Is it the same for the song Brand Nubian? Because you're also credited yeah, right now as Brand yeah. Okay. Those are both Poobah records. I mean, I knew the records. I I wanna say Poobah borrowed my cameo rigor mortis. He had like forgot it and like I went home mm-hmm. and, and got the record. Like I lived close to the studio, but that was it, man. I didn't really do a whole lot on those. In retrospect, my credit is unearned on those two records. And are these your first like credited productions? No, my first credited production was a song called Dope on Plastic by an artist named Uptown okay. on Tommy Boy. Hey yo, John, say, start up the phonograph. Got around the whole Tommy Boy stack. Listen up as I take out the rhyme book. Four minutes, calculation time took. And then is there any difference well i guess now i see okay because there's dante ross you don't even, you don't even feel like you should have been credited but i was curious of what the difference was between crediting something that's dante ross versus crediting stimulated dummies that's a good question i don't think there is a lot of a lot of difference i mean i, I did some records without those guys later like i did like a bunch of stuff for corn and then everlast record and some other stuff fun loving criminals a couple other things without those guys Maybe John Spencer or something. I think on the Eminem record, they might have fucked the credit up and just gave me credit on it too, on 8 Mile. But for the most part, I worked with, with John on 95% of everything. And I worked with Gibi on everything until he no longer was a stimulated dummy. At, at one point in time, we, mm-hmm. we shook hands and kept it moving. But yeah, we, we kind of did everything together. And, and we put all our name. Well, I don't want to say we did everything together. We put all our names on it. But it didn't mean that one guy didn't do the beat or another guy didn't do the beat. Gotcha. So John engineered gotcha. it all. And sometimes we'd mix and match loops and drum samples and uh, we'd do it together. And sometimes we'd just do it on our own because we had it. And like it didn't need any anything from the other guy. So I want to talk about All For One for a second. Uh-huh. I know we touched on it earlier yeah. and just how amazing of a song that is. That's just dope. Um, and so the album is released... December fourth, that, and that and that's when like you know that's when like Metallica or like you know that's when the big dogs come out. Bruce Springsteen, right? Like you're not you, right before the holidays. Like they put it yeah. out there just to get it off the fucking off the fucking release schedule. Right. Dead ass. Off the books, they put yeah. it out for mm-hmm. it to fail. And so, 
I'm looking at the release date for the single, All For One. It comes out September 5th, 1992. Almost two years later. All For One? No, I think, I think your dates are wrong. Okay, I'm just looking at the Wikipedia, so that yeah, could be I think those, absolutely I think that, incorrect. That, the, I think the two-year wait is actually feels so good. I see. Okay, it's got here, Brand Nubian released first as a single. Before, I guess it's before the album. Brand Nubian and Feels So Good it has coming out before the album. And then Wake Up the week of the album release. That might make sense. I, I thought it was out a little earlier, but but that... That makes sense because they're trying to they're trying to tr- drop that shit in the ocean. So it's <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, let's let's and, get rid of these annoying militant kids. And then it's got slow down March of ninety one. Yeah, because it turned around over the holidays and the start of the year, and it started moving. And you know, mm-hmm. I got to thank Red Alert, man. He was banging it, multiple album cuts, and it was it was in every car in New York City. Every car driving around New York City, that was the album. And that album rocked the whole summer. Yeah, it had a good wow. six to eight month run on that record. And so I want to talk about Slow Down for a second. Yeah, Slow Down was, I mean, that's amazing. You know, no one knows this that Sadat did that. He did that beat. Yeah, he made the beat. I remember wow. he borrowed my, my Ohio Players record, the pain joint um, for the drums. He was like, yo, you got that? And I was like, I always kind of had a crate of records at the studio. And I was like, yeah. I used to lock them up in this room. They used to let me keep a crate there. I just always had some odds and ends there. He was like, I was like, yeah, rock out. And he, he, I remember on the S900, he looped a beat and he made that joint. And then we had to clear it. Right. And and it hadn't even been out that long, right? Nah, I think that song came out like 88? No, nah, maybe even yeah. 89. It was current. It, it was yeah. pretty current. And that shows you the genius of Sadat X. He, he seen it and he was like, I want to rock with that. I hear something that no one hears on it. Um, and he he had the home, his homegirl came in and sang the part. And that was mm-hmm. that. Like we, you know, it was a banger from Jump. And um, we had to talk to Edie Brickell and the New Bohemians literally on the right. phone to clear it. They, their lawyer and our our lawyers connected us on a big conference call and they just wanted to make sure the song wasn't misogynistic and or right. negative. And we just, I remember X talked to them about X and J. Poobah, of course, wasn't there. He was probably at the Polo Mansion spending money or <laughs> drunk. <laughs> um, so, so um, yeah, we, we talked it through with them and they were cool with it and they took half the publishing, which was more than fair and that was that. Was that a typical thing people would do at that time is take a song that's like kind of current? It, it was more, you mean sampling a current song? Yeah. No, not really. No, it wasn't, wasn't done that much. Nah. I think, I'm trying to think who else did it. A few, well, I mean, I did it for third bass kind of. Sledgehammer was relatively um, right. current. We might have started a trend with that. I don't think we invented it. I think some people did it. I remember X wanted to also use John Cougar Mellencamp, let it all hang out. We we ended up not using it for something else. And I'm never never quite sure why we didn't use it, but but um that that would have been funky too. Is that more or less of a headache for the label to try to clear if something's like super current? Maybe less older? because you can find a group. You don't have to go find people. I see. You know, you have to I go see. do some some research and and often when you're dealing with um something old at that point they don't the original artist doesn't even know the publishing so they come and they mm. you know they they you're you're dealing with a publisher who's like some guy who who probably jerked the guy for the publishing so you know you, right. you might have Aaron Fuchs or someone on your back so it's it's not um I think it's probably easier with the current group 
Right, because that whoever steps in between, they're just chasing whatever bags can come with it. So they're trying to leverage all of that right. against you when you're right. trying to clear it. Right. I mean, I there, there's another fiasco on that album. So step to the rear. We didn't clear it. And Lowell Folsom made a claim after I worked at the label and the label gave him publishing on it. But I didn't sample Tramp by Lowell Folsom. That's not Tramp. Mm. It don't even sound like Tramp. So how does that work then? If 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 you didn't do it and they've signed off on it, they cleared it behind my back. It's a point of contention that I've never gotten to the bottom of. Wow! Yeah, they gave away my publishing and the whole shit. It's kind of crazy. Yeah, that's wild. I mean, there's so many so many instances of people, you know, losing their publishing, and, you know, for sampling somebody and not saying and not clearing it, or you know, sampling somebody and getting away with it, but you don't usually hear about- Yeah, it's the only time I know it's ever happened. If you look at it, Lowell Folsom, and I remember seeing the paperwork way later, that Lowell Folsom made a claim, and, and I think they had a musicologist listen to it, and they said it was Tramp, but that's not Tramp. It don't even sound like wow. Tramp. It's way slower, for one. And speaking of Step to the Rear, I mean, it's a standout on the album. Yeah. And it's also, you know, also, very much. We also a, made it in like eight, you know, like we made it in like a couple of minutes. It was like, oh, I, I mean, bet, it, was, but it's like, it was, it was funny, man. And Poobah's just going off. Oh, he's just killing You know it. what I'm saying? He's just killing it the entire oh, time. Man. And it's a standout record and it's a solo. So this, uh, I imagine when you starting to see him wanting to step into the, the solo spot. More and more, he kept saying to me, yo, I'm, I'm going to do this one for the head. I'm going to take this one to the head. Like he did it okay. on the who can get busy like this man, right? I like see. he's like, oh yeah, that's I'm I'm going solo on that, right? And then he had Poobah Positive and LG. Well, you know, Positive's not even in the band, man, and other right. members of the group ain't on the record. So it's um, you see it happening, it's coming. And by the time we do the slow down video, he doesn't want to be on screen with those dudes. He's like, yo, I don't want to really. Be on, I'm, I'm gonna shoot my shit over here. Yeah, he was really him and him and Jay had some. Um, some problems and and I don't really know what they were about. I think it was about Jay just not tolerating Max's nonsense, right? Like he's mm -hmm. just like I'm over the bullshit. The bullshit continued, you know. And and they're breaking up. I mean, that you know. And I remember like saying to Poobah, like, "Yo, you don't have to quit Brand Newbie and they do a solo record. You could do both." And he was like, "Yeah, whatever." He didn't want to hear it. Do you ever remember any conversations between them about him doing so much solo stuff on the record? I don't remember a direct conversation about them, but I had complaints from X and, and Jay about it. And, you know, they would say that Poobah's like, Poobah would book all the studio time and not let him know and just go do like stuff like that. So that's what I mean by doing, by doing them dirty. He mm -hmm. would like book sessions and not let them know there were sessions. So he was planning to do stuff solo. He had one foot gotcha. out the door by the time the record came out. So how long after the record came out and, and was getting busy and getting acclaimed would you say the group was officially broke up? I would say they were broke up maybe by June, July of that year officially, but by the time they shot the slow down video, you could tell the writing was on the wall. Mm -hmm. You know, Max was very difficult. You know, he's, he's a genius and with um, that level of talent, you know, sometimes you get a lot of fucking, a lot of shit along with it. And we got a lot of bullshit mm -hmm. that went along with it. Like a Max is, um, he's my man, that's my brother. I love him, but he he is, and I've told him it, so I don't, I don't have to hold back. He's he's a massive underachiever. He should be mm -hmm. in the Hall of Fame, and now he's you know he's the guy who only people really know know about, right? He's the guy who Tretch called the fiercest MC around on on Guard's right. Grill, and you know he was the rapper's rapper at that moment. 
whether it was Q-Tip telling me he was the nicest or B-Real telling me how much he fucked with him or whoever it was, all of his peers held him in a place up here and he never followed through on, on that potential to be one of the all-time greats. You know, mm. so, and it, it's, you know, it's, it's all largely in, due to his, you know, his, um, the way he conducts himself. He's, he's not that focused. And, you know, I always think like, you know, he's like that, that kid who could dunk in the schoolyard who never played ball. Right. The kid who, you know, the kid who like should have been in the NBA and he's not in the NBA. He should be the, in the, the street ball legend. Right. Or, you know, the guy who like, he made it to the league, but he wasn't that dude and he was that mm. dude in the street. So. You know, he's kind of that, like he's that that kind of thing, like seminal, but but he's not in the Hall of Fame. He's not in the Hall of mm-hmm. Fame, much to his own doing. So as they break up, and, and we're going to get into that further next time we sit down, but as they break up, Pooba starts working on a solo album. Brand Nubian starts working on an album without him, and they're both still on Elektra. Uh, so how did it, how do these deals like? Do they have to get reworked? Do you, does Puba sign a new deal? Like how does yeah, that work? Yeah, we had options on both of them with Mini Maxes already already set up. So X and J keep Brand Nubian, and and I wonder if they had to stand behind the recoupment too of Brand Nubian. And what's really crazy is when I think about Brand Nubian first album, I've never seen a royalty check, nor have those guys to my knowledge. But that record costs nothing to make and has to be recouped. But for reasons it's unknown, it's got to be recouped. Yeah. You know, oh, I know why because the balance is spread out through all of their albums, and I think it's all one one balance sheet for Puba and Brand Nubian. And Grand Puba spent an astronomical mm-hmm. amount of money making two thousand. So, so, I so see. I think that may be the reason why. And if and if, it, if that's not the official reason why, I'm sure the the powers that be at WMG have somehow finessed that shit to look like that. So so um, that said, yeah, you know, I, I picked up the option on Pooba, obviously, and, and I decided to roll the dice with Brand Nubian to make a solo record, which many people mm-hmm. thought I, I was not wise in doing, but, but it was a cheap record to make. Jay was very focused. I loved what X was capable of doing. I thought that Jay... And him had something, and they went and started to make the record, and it was really easy. They were, they was like turnkey. I, I don't even remember going to many sessions for the record. I remember them playing me a lot of the songs, and I kind of trusted them to do a lot of it without my my, you know, deep knee deep involvement in it. And they they made a great record. Um, the one thing I remember doing is we had um, both versions of Punk's Jump Up, Diamond D's remix which is actually the original version and punks, which was the remix. And no one mm-hmm. knows this. And the, the, you know, the Lou Donaldson one, the biddies in the BK lounge, the one that's a hit with the Rocky horns. office jay was like yo i like the remix better i was like yeah me too he was like yo could we make the remix the single and i was like yeah that's an ill idea let's do that and we flipped it where the biddies in the bk lounge rocky one becomes the single and we called the other one the remix right we and i don't think we ever talked i don't think we ever talked to diamond about it i think we just did it and um hey that was a hit record punk jump up was punk jump up but you know a lot of people got their gold chain stolen that record yeah, I bet that was a soundtrack yeah, was, to a lot of robberies. A violent, a violent record. It was <laughs> ill, though. I love that record. And, and you know what? So that record performed in a very similar way to 
one uh, reel to reel. They kind of sold around the same amount, but I was endlessly more proud of Brand Nubian and God We Trust because the odds were against them. And, and yeah, they were they more were the, the underdog, underdog in the situation. And, and, you know, they were easier to deal with, um, more accountable. And um, I honestly enjoyed being around them more. Like Sadat is a very close friend of mine to this day. And, you know, I love Jay. Like, mm -hmm. Just um, they showed me a lot as people in making that record. They had a lot of fortitude because they knew people was talking shit. You know, X says right. it. People talk about how the Nubian rain have fallen. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah, he, yeah. he's he's even, you know, they're aware. And I, and I I was endlessly proud of the fact that those guys, you know, they rose to the occasion. And and Puba in retrospect, and I had a you know, I produced a lot of a lot of songs on Real to Real. Puba was lazy, man. That record could have, should have, would have mm. been the best record, but he wanted to produce a lot of it himself. He, you know, he didn't want to work with other people. A lot of opportunities that came his way, he didn't want to take advantage of, whether it was Chip producing something or Muggs producing something or this guy, Eric Sermon or that guy. There was also a Mace song, this joint that Mace did. We used Black Cow first and we couldn't clear it. Mm. Steely Dan shot us down. That that I think would have changed the outcome of that record. We had a song. I think it would have been a hit. And we we also got denied on the Sarah Smile sample. Yeah, by Hall and Oates. Okay. Um, and and those two records may have changed the cumulative sales of that record. But who knows? I mean, Poobah didn't make. He didn't have huge choruses. He was kind of lazy. He rapped really good, but he he could have he could have dug deeper. And made a better record. He didn't have a lot mm -hmm. of features, and he was cater he catered to his ego a lot. And it's funny because people, in retrospect, I think consider that record great. I consider it very good, not great. Did you feel caught in the middle at all when you got this this band breakup and you're working on two different records? Nope, not one bit. Because X and and J were appreciative of the fact that I gave them a shot. They knew people thought they mm -hmm. that that they shouldn't get a shot. So so from those guys, I got gratitude. And from Poobah, you know, I had the same same bullshit I had on the first record. An irresponsible, dysfunctional dude who who might do some shit that puts you in a bad situation with, with somebody like a producer or someone who he stiffed to pay or didn't give credit to, which happened on the first album. Like, I don't know if you know this, but LG, um, who, was, who was like a, a Zulu cat, Jazzy J's man, he produced Poobah Positive and LG and mm -hmm. who can get busy like this man. But Poobah turned in the credits and had himself as producer. So the record wow, came out okay. and LG was like, yo, D, I did them records. And it, it was, um, it took a lot of coaxing to get him to sign agreements and get those guys paid. And it wasn't cool because mm. I had um, money from um, Zulu Nation um, on me about it. They, because Pooba right. had blamed me for it. So he put, oh, wow. Yeah, he so put he me threw in, you under the bus for Zulu. Yeah, but, but you know, like I am. Um, I knew a lot of them cats and, and I just handled okay. my business. I was like, nah, that's not what happened. I would never disrespect, like not at all. And they just gave me the, you know, they gave me the the time to fix it and I fixed it. Um, but Max wasn't cooperative. And that's what I mean by, you know, he was capable of doing people dirty at times, you know, like he just was real irresponsible. I don't want to say it was malicious, but it was, it was odd, you know, like, and, and there's a long, you know, like there was on the second album, I remember um, the devil, Latif, he did the beat. But Poobah took the credit for it. And Latif was like, yo, D, I did that beat. And I was like, of course you did. It doesn't sound like something Max would do. And mm -hmm. then I fixed it. You know, so it was it was weird. And there was another song on the album, Mind Your Business, that that was a B-side. And I want to say that was off the Sarah Smiles, off something we couldn't clear. And I went and made the beat. 
And Pooh was like, no, nah, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not putting it on the album. Then he was going to do a show at Howard, and he called me from the car, from the Jeep or somewhere. Yeah, because I, I guess cell phones had, had been out by then. And he, he called me and he said, yo, I just played that joint in the car, and everyone said we should put it on the album. I was like, the album's already mastered. It's already at the pressing plant. We can't put it on the album. And that was another one. Mm. Like, you know, you wasted my time. We put it on a B-side, but, you know, could have been on the album. And and for me personally, that annoyed me because because I was like, yeah, Pooba is one of those guys like like he he just would change his mind a lot and and make like ego based decisions that always weren't that weren't always beneficial to himself. He was I always say this like he was a short change cat like you know he didn't see a big picture, and and that was just think of think of for the yeah moment. he was like you know like he says it in a record he said. If you don't have the dough, you won't see the bro. That never mm-hmm. benefits you in the long run, you know? Um, and, and I always say, like, I look at Buster. And Buster, to this day, you know, we refer to Max as the god, right? Um, and Buster mm-hmm. looked up to Max like crazy. Like, he was like, you know, he was the apex of rapping. You know, but look at Bus. Bus handled his business. And he's got long-term money. And, and I put Everlast in that, too. Everlast was, you know, like Everlast, I always think about Everlast and Poobah. So like, Pooba is innately more talented than damn near anyone. He can make beats. He can play piano. He could. He's got a great sense of melody. He's a great rapper. He, you know, he knows beats. He knows records. He's a great digger. He knows a lot. So Everlast taught himself. He could play guitar. He taught himself how. He could play piano. He could play keys. He could play bass. He could play everything at this point. He could DJ too. Everlast was nice at cutting. He did all the cuts on Whitey Ford. He could. He could cut. But you know, and he could rap and all yeah. that, but he doesn't rap as the way Poobah raps, but he taught himself to sing and he really was determined and he really worked fucking hard. Like he's the most, mm-hmm. him and Buster work the hardest, right? Like he's so, he's so yeah. driven and I feel like he's driven because his skill isn't as innate. Poobah's skill is so mm. innate that he doesn't try that hard and therefore you see the end results. And one guy like is a multiple, you know, he has, he has, you know, he has money his whole life. His children will have money, right? right? And Max, I can't say the same thing. So, you know, and, and the talent, like, you know, you could ask Everlast. Everlast will tell you, Poobah, like, he's, you know, more talented than me. Like, you know what I mean? He, I don't want to say more talented, but, you know, he, it's, he's a natural. Yeah. And the natural works against him mm-hmm. when it comes to applying himself. Sometimes they'll say that same thing about people like in the oh, yeah. NBA. Like, the Dar- guys that, Dar- that work Miles. real hard. Right, exactly. he was a natural, exactly. but he like, didn't work hard. Or like you know, dudes who get fat, exactly. like you know, you're in, like um, mm-hmm. Sean Kemp. You know, right. he he, right. he should be so, a Hall of Famer, but he's not. So it's a similar parallel. Uh, so we're gonna get further into you know uh, the next record from both of them, and the next time we sit down, just to end this off. One thing I found really interesting when I'm you know playing the playing the album to to come up with my questions. So, you know, just just having these conversations with people, it's got me a lot more attuned to like the business of albums. So I scroll down to the bottom in Spotify and I see that the copyright for the album is attributed to Tommy Boy, which I thought was wild. They bought it. <laughs> well, you know, Tom also, like I did it, I did a deal with Tom um, where he bought, he licensed my royalty for 10 years on Whitey Ford for a lot of money and he used that for his uh-huh. valuation when he sold the company oh right so it it, it, it inflates the value 100%. of the company so when he sells and he acquired sense. brand nubian and a lot of the old electric catalog along the way which which you know like look wow 
part of me is like, man, that fucking guy. And the part of me is like, you know what? He played the game well. He got $100 he million. Dollars. I mean, he look, <laughs> if it frees De La's music up, great, you know? Um, yeah. The guy's smart, man. I would have never thought he would walk away with $100 million at the end of the day. He also had a hedge fund investor that helped him do it. So when, when you hear that he got $100 million, he didn't put $100 million in his pocket. He has a, an investor mm-hmm. and he, but he probably put 20, 20 million in his pocket, 25. Yeah. So. Right. Hey, Which Monica Lynch amazing. built that label and I don't think she got any of it. Well, that's not great. That's not no, good that at all. No, that sucks. I mean, Jesus. capitalism. Yeah. Yeah. Damn. I guess, you know, as they say, it's, it's, it's the plight of being a worker versus an owner, right? Yeah. And, you know, like Monica and me to an extent, I'm kind of like that sometimes. I haven't, I haven't, I've been a worker a lot and mm-hmm. I, and I, uh, I try to change that mentality the last decade or so. So That's real. Well, uh, it's wonderful to hear about this first album. It's it's dope. We're in a dope position in your story because, you know, we can look back now and say that your tenure here at Elektra starts to be responsible for one of the greatest eras in hip hop, you know. So it's 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 dope to start to get into get into this and get into you with Elektra and it all starts with brand newbie. And so um, and it all ends with Pete Rock's Instagram. 